Church, please open your Bible or turn to page 3 of a bulletin for the scripture reading for today. The scripture reading is taken, today is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, and she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This is a really strange experience. Uh, we have about 13 of us here this morning in the sanctuary. It's Pastor GL and the 12 uh, disciples. Uh, we want to just give you a hearty good morning from all of us. Uh, I'm really hoping that you are not watching this alone. Uh, this week, you know, for me personally, this week has been an intense week. Uh, and I think it's the same for many of us, uh, leaders uh, and staff, a lot of adjustments to be made, conversations to be had, meetings uh, to, be, to be attended to due to this virus situation that is constantly evolving. And I am so thankful for my cell group that I got to meet on Friday night. You know, we just hung out to eat and to talk and to process some of the many fast-paced changes that are happening. And I cannot tell you how wonderfully God has used this little group of people to be such a blessing and refreshment to my soul. So again, I really hope that you are not watching this alone. So today we are beginning a new sermon series. Uh, this series will prepare us for Holy Week, uh, especially Good Friday. Now the focus of Good Friday is Jesus, of course, but I think we often get caught up trying to make Jesus look very good, so much so that we uh, focus a lot on Jesus being the good, powerful son of God that, that he is, uh, but that's not all of who he is. Central to Good Friday is how Jesus became sin, became a curse, and became a propitiation for us. Now, those are not my words that I'm using. Uh, these descriptions, they come from scripture. So we'll be looking at what those descriptions mean over the next three Sundays, but today we look at the issue of sin. Uh, I want to begin by asking you to imagine a scenario with me, all right? So just imagine for a moment. So we're all in this COVID-19 situation. The economy is getting worse. And so maybe on a personal level, you're looking for some financial security. And so what you do is that you go and you speak with your financial advisor about making some investments. Now imagine that he gives you uh, this piece of advice. Even in tough times, consumers continue to partake in things that may not be considered particularly virtuous. From cigarettes to sex, burgers to Botox, consumer indulgences require products and services from a wide range of publicly traded companies. Some luxuries see reduced demand during tough times, but smokers could keep smoking, drinkers keep drinking, and the lustful keep lusting. 
bad habits are hard to break. And when times are tough, who wants to even try? Nobody can predict the markets, but consumers are only human. And economic conditions may not be able to defeat their appetites for sinful stuff. Wow, what amazing investment advice. Now, this is actually taken from an online investment website. Uh, it, has, it is advertising a stock portfolio called The Seven Deadly Sins. Now, here's, here's a bit more, just a bit more of their sales pitch. Right, so now with Motive Investing, you can invest in The Seven Deadly Sins Motive, a carefully researched and balanced portfolio of stocks that may give investors diverse exposure to investing in sin, vice, and adult entertainment. Now, apart from trying to be provocative and I think somewhat humorous also, uh, the idea behind this product is that even when the economy is at its worst, investors can always rely on one constant. And that constant is human sin. There's this theologian and he's one of America's leading intellectuals of the 20th century. His name is Renal Niebuhr. And he puts uh, the state of humanity like this. The doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, it's very chim, but what, what, he's, what he means and what he's trying to say is that sin is unmistakable. Sin is so prevalent. It's so undeniable. From person to person, generation to generation, society to society, everywhere across the globe, you can easily identify the presence of sin. Sin is undeniable. But what is sin? If you were to look into the Bible, you would find that there is no single word to describe sin. The Bible uses at least 19 different words to express what sin is. So sin is described as law-breaking, as becoming filthy, as becoming foolish, as unbelief, as slavery, as becoming overwhelmed by evil power, as spiritual adultery, as disobedience, as missing the mark, and so on. Sin is not only about the bad things that people do individually, but it also involves and infects and affects everyone else. Sin can be pretty difficult to define precisely, but for simplicity's sake, and in line with today's passage, here's how I'm going to define sin. Sin is breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's rules. And I want you to keep that definition in mind, all right? I'm going to walk us through the passage and draw out for us four insights into sin. And then we're going to turn our eyes to Jesus and how the events of Good Friday addresses uh, this issue of sin. Today's story takes place in the garden in Eden. Now, it is a beautiful place. It has every kind of tree, animal, bird, and sea creature. In this garden, life is blooming all around. There is no such thing as evil no such thing as death, no such thing as rot or decay. In this garden, aging is not a bad thing. Getting older doesn't mean becoming weaker. It means getting stronger. It means becoming more and more beautiful. In this garden, God is always present. He creates the first man, Adam, from dust and places him in charge of everything in the garden and all the creatures. And then God creates the first woman also to complement Adam both in his life and in his duty. Adam and Eve themselves are utterly and completely free. There is no conflict whatsoever in doing whatever made them happy, and yet at the same time doing what glorified God, their creator. No difference, no conflict. Every second is well spent, and yet it is also completely memorable. They see God face to face, they speak with God, and they also enjoy everything that is in the garden. In all of this perfection, this paradise, there is only one rule, one command, one prohibition. No one is to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, at this point, it is good for, for us to ask, is, is all this for real, right? For, for all the beauty and the description of, of, of the garden and paradise, are we supposed to take the story of this garden of Adam and Eve, are we supposed to take it literally? Well, you see, the Bible presents this story as literal. 
it's not meant to be like an Aesop's fa uh, fable with a moral at the end of it. It's not meant to be a myth or a very nice story about how mankind came to be. It's presented as a literal description. But for many of us, we'd be like, mm, but you know, where's the science in all of this? And yeah, it's true. You know, the Bible does not use very scientific language, you know, especially what we would expect from uh, an explanation into the origins of life. But then again, the Bible isn't from our age. And I think we need to accept the idea that that idea of reliable language at that time wouldn't be the same as our idea of reliable language today. And yet, that difference doesn't make this story any less true. I'll tell you that both the Old and New Testaments, they affirm the creation story in Genesis. The Old Testament genealogies, they trace back all the way to Adam. Uh, biblical authors like Moses, Isaiah, Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, and most importantly, Jesus Christ himself, they treat the creation account in Genesis as literal and historic. So yes, this garden in Eden is a literal garden. Adam and Eve were literal people. The story of creation is real. And so with that clarity, I think we are now ready to move into our passage in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, would you open up to it, turn to it? I think it might be very distracting trying to look at your screen while looking at the TV screen and all that. Get your Bibles out uh, and then follow with me as I move through Genesis chapter 3. Today's passage begins very abruptly. And what it does is that it introduces us to this creature called the serpent. Now, what are we told about the serpent? It is a real snake that was created by God. This snake is described as being the most crafty animal. Now, this term crafty uh, is a neutral term. It could go either way, right? In a good way, craftiness would be prudence. Uh, if the serpent could handle your finances, you would be really wealthy. But in a bad way, craftiness would be cunning. And in that case, you would not want to entrust the serpent with anything of yours. And so, as we begin this story, we are given a warning of sorts. Pay close attention to this crafty serpent. And as the story progresses, we understand that this serpent is actually under the control of Satan, the devil, the first enemy of God. Even in the last book of the Bible, Satan is still described as that ancient serpent. Now the serpent approaches Eve and begins to question her. It seems like a very innocent, inquiring question. It's like the serpent goes up to, to Eve and says, hey, Eve, you know, could, you, could you help me clarify something? You know, I heard that God set this rule and apparently the two of you, Adam and Eve, you can't eat any of the fruits in this garden. Is this true? And now this is a very innocent sounding question, but the thing is that the serpent had laid a trap. In this simple question, the serpent had already attacked the character of God. The first way we see that is that the serpent uses the term Elohim to refer to God in verse 2. Now, if you look at your Bible, trans, uh, your English translation of the Bible, it, it, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you look back to Genesis chapter 2, and if you paid close attention to who it was that created Adam and Eve, it is not Elohim, it is not God but it is the Lord God or Yahweh. But what's the big deal? What's the, what's the difference? You see, Elohim can mean a couple of things. But in this context, it refers to God as the transcendental God. In Genesis 1, the word Elohim is used to describe the creator of the universe, the one who sets cosmic order in place. He speaks and that alone gets the job done. But in Genesis 2, when the attention turns to the Creator who makes the Garden of Eden, who makes Adam and Eve, then the word Yahweh is used to describe God. Yahweh is God's special covenantal name that He would eventually only reveal to Moses and to His covenant people, Israel. And at this point in Genesis though, Yahweh is God's personal name. It's the name of the God who puts His hands, who gets His hands dirty, forming Adam from the dust. It is the name of the God who, who puts his mouth to Adam's nostrils and breathes life into Adam. 
this is the God who reaches into Adam's side and takes out a rib and from that rib fashions the woman Eve. So what the serpent does is that it presents God not as the personal God, not as the God who walks through the garden or the God who speaks regularly with Adam and Eve, but he presents God as an impersonal, far away, a distant God, a, a deity who does his own thing. And we as creatures, we can only speculate and wonder what he's about, but we can never truly know for sure. That's the first way that the, the serpent attacks God's character. The second way is in how the serpent rephrases God's one rule. God's one rule is that Adam and Eve are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is just one tree. One tree. Now you look at how the serpent quotes God. Apparently, to the serpent, God has said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Zero. Nothing. Now this puts God in an extremely negative light. The serpent is saying, this God, this far away and distant Elohim, he must naturally be such a control freak. You know, he's such a killjoy. He's such an unreasonable God that when I ask you a question about this God, I must assume the worst about his commands. And this reminds me of when I was young. And you know, there'll be times where my friends and I would want to impromptu go and watch a movie, play at the arcade and so on. And we would, uh, most of us would need to ask our parents for permission before going. And, you know, as we, we started doing that, going call, call and pay phone, whatever it works, uh, there would be some of us who would just look very depressed, very sin, very miserable, right? And they would just tell us, tell the rest of us, ah, no, you know, no need to ask, lah, no point. They sure say no one, right? They'll confirm will not allow us to go for this movie or whatever. Now, that's the kind of picture of God that the serpent is painting. It is a sure, no, cannot one, that kind of God. And this is where we receive our first insight into what sin is. Sin is sinister. Now, the word sinister means that something is not only evil, but it threatens future evil and harm. Someone who is upset with you and shows you their black face and wants to fight you one-on-one, -on -one, that person is not sinister. But the person who is upset with you but smiles at you, while plotting how they're going to backstab you and destroy your relationships, that person is sinister. The serpent, you know, you could have waited in a tree, waited for Adam to walk past, drop on Adam, ambush him nicely, strangle him, and by force, try to make him uh, either choose to die or to eat the fruit. But instead, what the serpent does is that it befriends Eve in order to get to Adam. The serpent asks an innocent-sounding question. At the same time, totally disregarding God's good nature. Now, you notice that the serpent doesn't even try to deny that God exists. Doesn't try to do that. Doesn't try to tell Eve that God doesn't exist. The, the serpent simply discredits God's good nature. And so, even in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul describes mankind's problem with sin like this. He says, For although they knew God, which means that they didn't deny God's existence, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now, what's the big deal about giving thanks? Well, the phrase here, it means much more than just being polite and just saying thank you. To give thanks is to be full of gratitude. And why would anyone sincerely feel gratitude? You know, there can only be one answer. You feel grateful because someone has been good to you. When we as Agapians, we went out to pick you and we gave those uh, uh, little hand soap, yeah, antibacterial hand soap, right? We did that. And there were people who were grateful. Why? Because they saw our goodness in all this. What we see is that the serpent doesn't try to deny God's existence. It simply discredits God's goodness. And I think that is so true today. Sin doesn't require, require you to deny God's existence. You, you just need to be able to look at God as impersonal, uncaring, far away, not good. And you, know, you wouldn't think that God is bad, 
but maybe you just need to feel that he's not that good after all. And so when we sin, what happens is that we often end up blaming it back upon God. We say, well, you know, I was stuck at work with an issue and I asked God for help, but he didn't help me. So no choice. I have to take matters into my own hands. I've done my own part. And what I'm going to do is that I have to pin the blame on someone else. Another person might say, well, if you know, God wants me to forgive that guy so much, then why, why, should, you know, why doesn't he make that guy come and apologize to me first? Why should I be the one to forgive him? And others would also say, well, if God wanted me to believe in him so much, why doesn't he simply appear to me then? Since he doesn't bother, why should I believe in him? Now remember, I began this sin, uh, sorry, I began this sermon, oh my, not sin. I began this sermon by saying and telling us that sin is simply rule-breaking. But you realize that no one really says, aha, I just want to break this rule to offend God, right? Nobody really says that. But what sin does is that it leads us to feel like God isn't good, so His rules can't be that good, so it's actually okay to just ignore and disregard God and His rules altogether. And it is true this way that we see sin is sinister. Now, let me just bring us back to the garden. Uh, we come to verse 2 at this point, and here we meet Eve. Uh, Eve does well to address the false information that the serpent is spreading through its question. But something is wrong. Just like the serpent, Eve refers to God as Elohim and not Yahweh. Verse 3 brings even more trouble. As Eve recounts what God has actually said, she suddenly adds in her own rule. It says, she, 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 she tells the serpent, the rule is not only can't you eat the fruit, but you, you can't touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you, if you just touch it, you will die. Now we ask ourselves, did God really say that? And here again is what God said in Genesis chapter 2. And you would see that there is no mention whatsoever about touching the tree or touching the fruit. What's going on here? Now, is this just a, a small, innocent mistake? Uh, is this something that we just, you know, just, ah, oh, it's human error kind of thing? No, this, this is a big problem. This is a huge problem. If you look in the New Testament, Jesus opposes a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. And one of the reasons why he opposes them is because they had dared to add on their own laws to God's holy rules. And this is precisely what Eve was doing. Eve was behaving like a Pharisee. God had given his command, but for some reason, either Adam or Eve felt like they had to add their own portion on top. And this is supposed to be paradise. How can it be that God's word is not being taken seriously, being honored in paradise? But there's more. We come to verses 4 and 5, and here the serpent is no longer asking questions. The serpent is now making statements. The serpent is subtly providing Eve with advice. And again, there is something really strange about this picture. If you look back at verse 1, the, the serpent is described as the most crafty beast. Now, beasts or animals are a separate category from human beings. In Genesis 1, God creates the beast of the earth on one side and then he independently creates men and women. And so the serpent is a smart animal, but Adam and Eve are at another level of intelligence altogether. So the ser for the serpent to be instructing Eve, especially on a matter that regards right and wrong, there's something really strange here. To help you appreciate this, just imagine that the COVID-19 situation, it gets terribly out of hand. And our government, frustrated with talking to one another, we find out that they are going to the sea aquarium. And then they are trying to get advice from dolphins. Now, if, if we hear about that in the news tomorrow in the headlines, it will be shocking. I mean, dolphins are intelligent animals. Many people would attest to that. But it's not on the same level as human beings. 
So in the same way, to see Eve receiving moral advice from the serpent, it is nothing less than shocking. But how are we to make sense of all this? How do we explain what's going on? Well, this brings me to my second insight on sin. Sin proves the sinner. Now, all these imperfections, Eve referring to God as Elohim, Eve's little addition to God's rule, the serpent advising Eve, and later on in verse 6, we also learn that Adam was with Eve the whole time, yet he didn't do a single thing to stop Eve or the serpent. Now, all these things tell us that something has gone wrong in paradise. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to speculate a bit, all right? Perhaps, perhaps, between Genesis chapter 2 and 3, things had already happened. Perhaps this is not the first time the serpent has spoken to Eve. Perhaps the serpent has already planted little doubts in the minds of Adam and Eve. Again, this is all speculation. The Bible does not say anything about this. But what the Bible does clearly say is that a tree is judged by its fruit. Now, I'm not talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm talking about Adam and Eve. A tree is judged by its fruit. And that means that you know the heart of a person by looking at his actions. As, as Luke would say, a good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's highly scientific stuff. Now, th this truth is emphasized in both the Old and the New Testaments. What it means is that you can't do sinful things without a sinful heart involved. Now, when I say heart, I'm not referring to the organ that pumps blood around your body. I'm talking about the center of a person. The person's desires, fears, his will, sense of purpose, reasoning, intellect, conscience, and so on. Everything we do is motivated by the heart, and it takes an evil heart to do evil things. So here's the truth. Sin not only makes the sinner, sin proves the sinner. Sin not only makes the sinner, sin proves the sinner. Now again, remember, sin is simply breaking God's rules. And it takes a broken person to break God's rules. It takes a deviant person to deviate from God's word. It takes a defiant person to defy God's law. Now, don't you think that's true for yourself? Have you ever been shocked at the things you've done or said or thought before? Are you always in control, full control of yourself? Have you overreacted with your children? Have you overreacted uh, in a game? Have you overreacted uh, while you're driving? Now, how do you make sense of the times when you break God's rules? Do you consider yourself a good person who sometimes does bad things? Do you, do you tell yourself that, ah, oh, you know, wow, that was a really uncharacteristic mistake of me to make? Uh, but no worries, you know, I'm done with that. I won't make that mistake ever again. Or do you go on to blame others? Do you blame your situation, circumstances instead? Or do you, do you come and, and you realize that the only reason you're capable of doing these bad things is because there's something wrong, something sinful, something rotten about you? Sin proves the sinner. Now, once again, let's return to the passage. We are now at verse 4. And here the serpent responds to Eve with a simple statement. You will not surely die. Now, what does the serpent mean? I want to give you three possibilities. You will not surely die could mean, number one, Eve. Even if you eat the fruit, you surely won't die. Confirm won't die. Number two, Eve, if you eat or touch the fruit, you may or may not die. Not sure. Number three, Eve, you're wrong. If you only touch the fruit, you confirm won't die. Well, the truth is, the meaning is not clear. And that is part of the serpent's strategy. And now the serpent continues in verse 5, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow! Now the serpent is saying that the problem is not with eating the fruit. The problem is not with breaking God's rule. The problem is with God. 
Now you notice that the serpent has gotten much more bold as compared with the beginning of this chapter. It is now insinuating that God is not trustworthy. He's hiding relevant information from Adam and Eve. Why? Because God is insecure. God is afraid that Adam and Eve might become as powerful as him and challenge him to the throne. And so God has an ego problem. And the strange thing is that as Eve listens to the serpent, her attitude changes completely. We see this in verse 6. Her focus now swings completely inward. And now she sees that the tree is good for food. The fruit becomes a delight to her eyes. She finds the fruit desirable to become wise like God. Now, these are all the developments that are taking place in her heart. But what are the actions that come forth? She takes the fruit, she eats it, and then she also decides to give her husband a bite. What a swift change of heart. A complete 180. And from this interaction between Eve and the serpent, we draw a third insight into sin. Sin is seductive. Now, the whole conversation between Eve and the serpent, it, it plays out like, a, like an affair that is materializing. Step one, the seducer identifies the target. Step two, the seducer acknowledges and accepts that the target is married, has a spouse, doesn't try to deny that. Step three, the seducer instead goes on to discredit the spouse. What? You mean your husband doesn't tell you that he loves you every night? What? You mean your wife doesn't support you in everything? And then step four, the seducer then convinces the target that what he or she is really looking for is found in the bed of an extramarital affair. Now, this is what the serpent does with Eve. The serpent doesn't deny God, but discredits God again and again. The serpent leads Eve further away from thinking about what God wants and instead gets her thinking about what she wants. The serpent doesn't present sin as breaking God's rules. The serpent presents sin as getting what her heart truly desires. And sure enough, Eve bites into the forbidden fruit. Now, this is how sin continues to work in our world today. Now, most people don't really think of sin as breaking God's rule. In, in truth, I think hardly anyone really thinks about their life in terms of sin, even us Christians. I think this, this, this whole COVID-19 season, it showcases that. Many of us behave as though when we appear before God in judgment, He's going to be most concerned about how socially responsible we were whether we had taken steps to ensure that we didn't get infected or that we didn't become a spreader. But that's not the truth. God is going to peel back the layers of our hearts. He's going to be asking us, why did you stay at home? Why did you go to church? Why did you rebel against the authorities? Why did you remain silent when the authorities had crossed the line? And the truth is, many of us are making decisions out of the sinful fears and desires of our hearts. Now, of course, the fear of catching the virus is the most obvious fear there is. But there are so many other fears and desires at work in our hearts. The fear of being seen as unspiritual or lacking faith. The desire to be listened to and to be respected as we give advice. The fear of being too gung-ho and later catching the virus and everyone mocking you. And then the desire to be the practical, clear-headed person in the church while everyone else is the, the radical, fanatic Christian around. The fear of becoming a spreader and causing someone else to become infected or even die. And yet the desire to be in control of your own life, to minimize the chance of your independence being taken away through quarantine or being isolated from everyone else. The list goes on. Now what's, what's happening with us? It's the same thing that happened with Eve. The way that the serpent toyed with Eve's desires and fears, that's what sin is doing in our hearts right now. And of course, Satan is happily involved in the process as well. But that's why in our church, we often remind one another that our hearts are deceitful beyond anything else. Now, honestly, during this season, have you been primarily relying on yourself? What kind of desires or fears 
have led you away from God and towards sin instead. Now, pay close attention. Sin is seductive. That brings us now to the final part of today's passage. In the middle of verse 6, both Adam and Eve, they bite into the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how many fruit do they eat? We don't know. How many bites does it take to finish one fruit? We don't know. What did the fruit taste like? We don't know. Was the fruit crunchy or tender? Also don't know. The only thing we are told is in verse 7. Their eyes were opened. Now on the surface, this sounds like the serpent was speaking the truth. Adam and Eve did not collapse dead. And the Bible tells us their eyes were opened. These are exactly what the, the serpent had promised. But with their newly opened eyes, what did they see? They saw their nakedness and it terrified them. In a frenzy, they began to rip off fig, tree, uh, fig leaves. And fig leaves are really large leaves. And they made loincloths for themselves. Now question, what was so shameful about being naked? Weren't Adam and Eve already naked the whole time? Uh, yes, Genesis 2.25 tells us. Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. So why were they now feeling shame at being naked? Well, this week I, I saw a, a little interview about why it's much harder than it seems to not touch your face during this COVID-19 season. Now, have you ever noticed when you feel uncomfortable or stressed, uh, you instinctively, you know, maybe rub your eye, you scratch your cheek, maybe you cover your mouth with your hand. Now, these are little physiological reactions to give us little injections of comfort when we're feeling stressed or uncomfortable. But this is especially true when it comes to shame. When you confront somebody about something they may have done right, right or wrong, or even at a lower level, if you confront somebody at something practical that they just need to improve on, one of the most noticeable reactions that you would receive is that that person instinctively begins to close off, right? Closes off his own or her own body. Uh, maybe some turning away, maybe some folding of the arms, maybe some wrapping themselves even more in their jacket. Now, that's what's happening with Adam and Eve. The fact that they had sinned it opened their eyes to a whole new world of shame. And immediately, they feel this overwhelming need to cover up. And it's not that their bodies had suddenly become ugly or undesirable. Rather, by covering their bodies, they feel comforted. And they feel like their shame is being covered. But here's the thing. As Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden, they realize that their skimpy loincloth is not enough. They might have been okay with each other in their loincloths, but with God, they felt an incomparable degree of shame and they could not stand before Him as they were. They had to immediately hide themselves among the trees. Now, when I noticed how Adam and Eve only needed loincloths to cover themselves, they covered their shame with each other, but they had to hide themselves when God approached. It, it got me thinking a bit more about what sin is. And so here's the fourth insight into sin. Sin has both everything and nothing to do with us. Sin has both everything and nothing to do with us. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Now, when people come to this part in the passage, they respond differently. They interpret the events that they see here differently. And from how people respond, I realize that there's often just two ways of looking at God's rules. Let me explain a bit more. For some of us, we see Adam and Eve's shame. We see their innocence being lost. We see their relationship with God being destroyed. Later in the passage, we see them playing a kind of a blame game with one another. And we see all this shame and dysfunction. And we say, yeah, look at how they suffer. See all the consequences. This is why they shouldn't have sinned. And for us, for this group of people, we, we often think of it, of sin, in terms of the consequences that we face as a result. Sin is bad because it results in bad things to us. And so when God sets rules, He sets them for our good. We obey because God's rules are meant to protect us and bless us. In this sense, breaking God's rule is 
we have everything to lose. And so sin has everything to do with us. But for another group of us, we see God's disappointment with Adam and Eve. We realize that in verse 9, when God calls to the man, he was not really searching for him. This calling was rather a royal summoning of Adam before his holy presence to give an account for what had been done. For us, we sense that God gave Adam and Eve this one rule so that they might glorify God by trusting and obeying Him. God doesn't give many details about the consequences of eating the fruit because God desires that His people would simply trust and obey Him, have the love and respect for Him nonetheless. We feel the offensiveness of sin against God. We are reminded of Romans 1. Eve and Adam had, be, had wanted to become like God, and they had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling themselves as mortal being. They had listened to the serpent and had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the serpent, rather than Yahweh, the Creator. And Adam and Eve's sin was not just in eating the fruit, even though they knew that their disobedience meant death, their sin was also in giving approval to one another to break God's rule. For those of us in this category, we see that God sets rules for His glory. It's all about Him. It's not about us. In this sense, when we break God's rules, it is about Him. And so sin has nothing to do with us. But which view of sin is correct? Well, you see, both are necessary. If we see God's rules as mainly for our good, we end up picking and choosing which rules we, we feel are good for us, and we risk the danger of calling evil good and good evil. But on the other hand, if we see God's rules as mainly for His glory, we become cold and loveless in our obedience. In our self-righteousness, we actually encourage other people to sin because who wants to follow in the footsteps of a religious know-it-all who is blind to his own flaws and only has judgment in her heart for others? The truth is, God is both good and holy. His rules are both for our good and for His glory. We are meant to trust and obey when we don't see how these rules work for our good. And we are meant to celebrate and give thanks when we recognize that our obedience has resulted in our good also. How do you look at sin? How, which extreme do you lean towards? Do you pick and choose which rules to keep? Or are you a very, very fervent in your obedience, but miserable and burdened? We must hold this truth in tension, that sin has both everything and yet nothing. To do with us. So what we've done so far is that we've looked at the first half of Genesis 3 and next Sunday we'll be looking through the second half and out of today's passage I've drawn out four insights into sin. Sin is sinister, sin proves the sinner, sin is seductive, sin has both everything and nothing to do with us. But if you're paying attention you would have noticed that I only led us to reflect upon sin but I didn't really offer any solutions. Now, that was deliberate. Sin is not something you can get rid of. Sin is not something you can cure or vaccinate. The Bible reveals to us that the only solution to sin is a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, once Adam had sinned against God, it was too late. Sin had become an irreversible part of human life. Romans 5.19, it tells us, that by Adam's disobedience, the rest of mankind were made sinners. The word sinners here means that every one of us are by nature wicked and rebellious against God. Psalm 51 tells us that every one of us was conceived and born in sin. Sin is our nature. And because of this nature that we now have, God replaced the one rule in the Garden in Eden with the Ten Commandments and 600 other rules at Mount Sinai. Each of those more than 600 rules God put in place, both for our good and for His glory. 
But the truth is that these 600 plus rules, they condemn us. We feel condemned because as the rules have become more defined, our sins have become more defined. And because our sins have become more defined, our ugliness as sinners has become more clear as well. Day by day, we behave just like Adam and Eve. And yet for us, the voice of Satan doesn't come through a serpent. His voice is daily in our minds and in our hearts. And day after day, we are seduced by sin. And day by day, we also suffer the sinister consequences of sin. And yet we go back to sin again and again like a dog that vomits out what is bad, only to go back to it and to lick up that vomit. We struggle with the shame of being sinners. And so we, we try to cover ourselves up with all kinds of stuff. We try to make a name for ourselves, make sure that name is as big as possible so that it covers our shame. We, we surround ourselves with as many friends as possible. The more friends we have close to us, the more hidden our shame feels. Some of us redirect the attention from our shame to healthy lifestyles, to supporting causes, to being an exceptionally filial child to our parents. Christians are no different. And perhaps it's even easier for us. All we need to do is get more involved in church, join a cell, serve in a ministry, become a leader, become a pastor, preach a sermon. Wow. You can give some tithes, you can help some people. All kinds of ways to cover up our wretched sinfulness. Now, as we do all these things, we feel like, yeah, you know what? I, I am adequately clothed. We put on little moral loincloths in front of each other and, and we feel like, yeah, you know what, I, I'm fine. But then nothing scares us like death when God calls us home, when he gives that royal summons for us to stand before him and give an account for what we have done. Then our loincloths are going to feel so silly and unreliable. And the thing is that we would have nowhere to hide. And that would be it. In just a, the past few minutes, I've summed up the totality of our lives. Sin, shame, loincloths, royal summons, exposed. That's it. That's our lives. And that's the world we live in. COVID-19 is hardly significant. You can just chuck COVID-19 under the loincloth section together with every other area of hypocrisy and phoniness in our lives as well. But it is into this world and for this kind of people that Jesus came. By that time, the serpent had made the whole world into his little garden, his little satanic paradise. But this time, Jesus is the surprise visitor. Jesus is the crafty son of God who comes as a helpless baby, born of a virgin, unstained by Adam's sin. He grows up among the earth, uh, among sinners, serving sinners. He respects his father and mother, though they are sinners. He, he plays with the kids in the neighborhoods, though they are all sinners. He patiently gets unjustly scolded by an irritable auntie at the, work, at the mark play, marketplace. And she's also a sinner. But he loves them all. And when the time comes, he begins his ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist, also a sinner. And immediately he is sent into the wilderness where he is tempted. But this temptation, his temptation, it doesn't come through the hissing lips of a serpent. No, Satan himself in all his vile glory personally tempts Jesus. But Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus was not seduced. Not one of the 600 over rules did he break for our good and for the glory of God. But here's the thing, as Jesus goes around teaching and healing and doing all various kinds of miracles, sin continues to abound everywhere. Even his 12 closest disciples, the people who were nearest to him, they weren't getting any less sinful. But then Jesus begins to reveal his plan. He would suffer and he would be killed. And sure enough, that, that comes to pass. In, less, in the duration of less than a day, Jesus is arrested, falsely charged, beaten up, humiliated in all kinds of ways, led up a hill, nailed to a cross, and crucified. But then we think, you know, why does he need to go that far for sin? 
Maybe for some of us, we think that, you know, being a sinner is not that terrible, right? Maybe Jesus could, you know, he could just drain some blood and collect it into little bottles and we could use them like hand sanitizers, right? Once that's done, maybe all we need to do is practice some social distancing from this unsanitized, infected world. And then why not just put on some masks, you know, just breathe through God's holy scriptures. That should be enough, right? That should be, that should be fine for us, right? But this is how the Bible looks at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Sin is the only disease where the only workable solution is that the doctor has to die. The doctor has to take the place of the patient. He has to endure the sufferings of the patient. And he has to suffer the patient's death on the patient's behalf. Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, Jesus embodied all 19 different expressions of sin. He embodied the filth, the foolishness, the unbelief, the slavery, the oppression and the evil, the vile disobedience, the spiritual adultery, the substandard nature of the rule-breaking sinner. He died as though he was a sinner because we are sinners. His life he exchanged for each one of our lives. But it doesn't end there. He makes us the righteousness of God. He takes our rule-breaking, but gives us his perfect record. He takes our hell, and he gives us his paradise. He takes our nakedness, and he gives us his robes of righteous glory. We are sinners, but he became sin. His life for ours, his life. Hours. Let's pray.